This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, April 19th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court recently threw out a portion of a statute for being unconstitutionally vague. The question dealt with what kinds of crimes would trigger an automatic deportation. The case continues to push the line over what makes a statute too vague. Clark Neely, Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute, discusses the case and its likely impact. Well, it's important, I think, for two reasons. Uh, first, it's important because the court has, uh, the Supreme Court has struck down a provision in a law that effectively delegated to the judiciary to determine the scope of the law. Essentially, this is a law that, that says that a, a lawful permanent resident or other alien may be removed from the United States uh, if they commit certain crimes and then those are listed and then any other crime that is a felony and that by its nature would be the sort of crime where uh, there's a substantial risk that physical force would be used against a person. And the judiciary is just supposed to apparently um, kind of imagine what other crimes those might be. Uh, So case by case basis, well, this was violent or this had this risk of becoming, this could have turned violent and is therefore for our purposes violent. Yeah, it's even more problematic than that. And the second thing that was important about this case is the very interesting opinion written by uh, Justice Gorsuch, uh, where he joined the so-called liberal wing of the court to be the fifth vote for uh, striking down this provision. And what he points out is that it's not even a matter of just deciding was the particular crime at issue in the case violent, but that what Congress has effectively instructed the courts to do is to assess the sort of, you know, the, the, the metaphysical nature of this kind of crime and determine whether in general this sort of crime uh, does or does not typically involve violence. And then on that basis, decide uh, you know, whether the statutory requirements are met and whether the person should be removed. And, and Justice Gorsuch says, no, that's, that's just inconsistent with due process. It is Congress's job to write laws that are sufficiently clear and specific that people can know uh, both what is forbidden and what the consequences will be. And it's not our job as judges to effectively participate in the legislative process by helping them write laws. So the court here threw out uh, a piece of a statute that specified several crimes that could trigger an automatic deportation and then sort of added, what, as you said before we started recording, a residual clause that was, and some other stuff. Exactly. And and this is somewhat in keeping with Congress's approach to what we might incru- increasingly loosely describe as lawmaking, where they essentially say to either an agency or in this case, ju- the judiciary, but in any event, somebody else, uh, you know, you get the gist of it. and You know uh, what we're saying. Yeah, yeah. Just, you know, sort of figure out kind of what else we might have intended or wanted to include here and fill in the blanks. And that, and that for uh, in the short term, any kind of law that has that, uh, that level of specificity might be perfectly reasonable to everyone in the room. But leaving those kinds of laws on the books invites all of this sort of imputation of well, clearly it, it now means this in light of years having passed. Right. I mean, I, so two problems. Uh, the, you know, the first is that the legisl- it's the legislature's job to, to come up with policy. And uh, the, the policy in this case is that people who have committed certain crimes should be removable from the United States. But those people are entitled to notice, just as we all are, about 
not only what is permitted and what is forbidden, but to, to at least with some degree of clarity, what the consequences will be uh, for transgressing. And that's the major problem with this is that um, an ordinary person of common intelligence would not be able to look at the statute and say, OK, I have a good sense of um, you know, what will trigger this, this uh, possibility of getting thrown out of the United States. You just can't figure that out from the face of the statute. And that's why Justice Gorsuch and the, the other four justices in the majority uh, concluded that it was unconstitutionally vague. So what did uh, Justice Kagan write in terms of uh – was it just a straight ahead, this is void because it is so vague and that's that? In essence, I mean, it, it, this case was a follow-on from an earlier case called Johnson um, in which a similar provision was thrown out uh, by the court, I believe, eight to one. And the question was whether certain fairly minor linguistic differences uh, between the statute at issue or the provision at issue in Johnson and the provision at issue in the most recent case, Demea, uh, whether those rather minor linguistic differences were enough to lend the amount of specificity that is that is necessary to to essentially reach a different conclusion in this case and find that whereas the, the statutory provision in Johnson was void for vagueness, this one was not because of course uh, now you know with these addition of a couple of words now suddenly people can understand exactly what they can and cannot do. Uh, so. Um... And this seemed, so there's no line that's been drawn here. I mean, uh, Justice Scalia was very critical of the Armed Career Criminal Act, and that's what the Johnson case uh, dealt with for for essentially having just extremely vague provisions. Uh, I think that the Johnson case was like the third time the Armed Career Criminal Act came before uh, the Supreme Court, and in this case, um, there they seem to be pushing back even further. Right. I think that's right. I, I, it is a deeply problematic uh, statute, uh, as is the one, uh, or at least this provision in, in the Demiak case. Um, one way to look at this would be to say that that uh, the if we live in a society where there's a sort of a presumption that everything is forbidden, and and then the government kind of clarifies what you are allowed to do, then these kinds of laws might be a better fit for that sort of system, right? Because if you're not really sure, then just don't do the thing. Uh, and I would say that that would, uh, certainly every judge and every justice would reject the proposition that that is either the society that we live in or the society that they have helped create. But it may not be as inaccurate as they would like it to be. I mean, they, they have created a presumption of constitutionality uh, as the default setting in constitutional law. And so in essence, what they've done is said, if the government says, no, there's the, you can't do this, then the presumption is that it's OK for them to enforce that law. That's not all that different from, you know, a uh, what our friend Tim Sanifer calls a permission society, essentially a society in which before you go out and do any particular thing, you it's incumbent on you to go check with the government to make sure that it's okay for you to do that thing. The reasoning that the dissent uses in the Demea case is much more consistent with that sort of a society. And the reasoning that Gorsuch and the other justices in the majority uses is one that I would say is much more consistent with our actual constitution, namely when the government presumes to either limit your freedom or impose consequences on your exercise of freedom, they need to be rather specific about what it is that they uh, are telling you that you may not do. Now, it seems that in uh, maybe other contexts, the more uh, conservative, for lack of a better word, justices on the Supreme Court would be all in favor of throwing out laws for uh, vagueness. Well, I would say this. Uh, in the First Amendment context, you're much more likely to get justices of all stripes uh, sort of willing to um, to take a hard look 
at a law and, and, and apply the void for vagueness doctrine. There's this whole doctrine in First Amendment law called chilling. And there, judges tend to be very concerned that maybe people are out there not saying things that they might otherwise say um, because they're not sure what the exact scope of the law is and whether they might get in trouble. The counterargument in this case would be, look, this isn't really about speech. This isn't about lawful conduct. This isn't about things that you know people might want to be out doing. This is really just more like what particular kind of crime will trigger this very serious consequence of getting thrown out of the country. And that's a fair point, point as far as it goes. But Justice Gorsuch underscores something really important, which is that um, even though this is technically a civil penalty in the sense that you're not being sent to prison, it's not a criminal law, that like a whole bunch of other um, consequences from violating civil laws, this has really, really serious consequences. And as Justice Gorsuch points out, not only – so. From a civil violation, you can get thrown out of the country, you can lose your house, you can lose your job, you can be fined extraordinarily large amounts of money, uh, and the uh, distinction between criminal penalties and civil penalties becomes rather tenuous when you see the how draconian the consequences of some civil violations can be. Okay, so uh, Clarence Thomas was on the other side of this, and he's concerned about uh, the due process or the the way that void for vagueness emerged. He said that this is a, the I, the modern application of void for vagueness is something that only emerged in the twentieth century. Right. So Thomas uh, is taking what he considers to be um, a more faithfully originalist approach. He looks back, uh, you know, into the uh, the founding era, uh, and says, "Look, I just don't see that uh, this approach to void for vagueness would have been encompassed by the due process clause as due process was understood by people at that time." It's an interesting back and forth between Thomas and Gorsuch. I think reasonable minds can differ uh, about who has the better of the argument. But certainly I think if there if one is to if one reads the Constitution within the the sort of the moral and political framework of the Declaration of Independence, um, the idea that the government should not be able to um, significantly penalize you without making very clear in advance exactly what it is that will trigger that penalty strikes me as actually quite fitting quite comfortably into long-standing notions of, of due process that may go back even before the founding. All right. So uh, the, the t- if void for vagueness is not an invention but something that you, says fit, you say fits comfortably within uh, how we understand the Constitution to uh, function, what's next? I mean the other concern that Clarence Thomas raises is you know, this could open up the, the disposition and tossing of a whole lot of laws for vagueness. Right. Uh, and it, it might well do so. Uh, but I think there's enough disagreement among the, um, you know, the justices, uh, both on the rationale uh, of this uh, particular case um, and their approach to the void for vagueness doctrine that it doesn't – I think it would be a mistake to suppose that um, five or more justices are clearly lining up behind a very uh, consistent uh, and robust uh, interpretation of the void for vagueness doctrine. So I think those concerns are um, not entirely superfluous, but I don't see any movement on the court, you know, that suggests that there's, they're about to really, you know, take the uh, uh, scissors to uh, large portions of the criminal code. I'm, it, it might be a good idea if they did, but I don't think they're about to do it. Clark Neely is vice president for criminal justice at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.